This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This weekend, the first cruise ship is to pull into Honolulu Harbor. The state's Safe Travels program gets tweaked due to snarls at the airport with mass flight cancellations. And there are long-term forecasts for the islands to see not just 10, but 12 million visitors a year. How do we deal with all that? We talked to John DeFries, head of the Hawaii Tourism Authority, this morning. The forecasts, frankly, are all subject to how we manage the Omicron variant. And you're beginning to see it, the effects it's having on the airlines being able to uh, properly uh, staff you know, their aircraft. And that led during the holiday season to a number of cancellations. And, and so we actually live by um, the airline seat capacity. Right, and, the airlift. Uh, when that is impacted, that backs everything out. Now, the holidays pretty much went as expected. We're experiencing right now a slight decrease, which is really seasonal in the first couple of weeks of January. But all indications are that first quarter will be um, busy. Typically, it is the busiest quarter in the year. We anticipate the same, but again, so much of it depends on on what happens with this COVID variant. The primary market going back into early summer has been the, the U.S. market. A number of the foreign countries have national policies that require returning visitors from the U.S. to either isolate or quarantine themselves. And that has and remains a major deterrent. The idea of making a trip for one week or 10 days and having to return and isolate yourself anywhere from a week to two weeks would be a deterrent for anyone. And so our major market is the United States, but we also have a careful eye on what's happening within each of the regions of the U.S. Because as their COVID numbers begin to surge, we're going to see fewer travelers from that part of the country than we would have ordinarily. How do we market ourselves as a safe destination? Because a month ago, we had cases in the double digits, you know, now we're in the thousands. I know that uh, uh, DBED just recently, uh, you know, canceled the award of the uh, the marketing contract. So so where do we go from from here? The, you know, the cardinal rule from the very beginning of this variant was tourism would recover, Hawaii's economy would be on a trajectory to recover, wholly based on our ability to keep the COVID curve flattened. And now that we're experiencing our own surge, that will again have an impact and influence over the numbers that we originally anticipated. So the answer to your question is that all of it is incumbent on on our ability to take care of the health of our own community. And as long as we are experiencing these kinds of increases, it's going to affect anything that we have forecasted to date. And so, that, you know, there are very few secrets in the industry, and so it's, it's pretty well known what Hawaii is experiencing. And so, you know, our immediate concern is really the safety of our own community. The, the cancellation of that RFP is also coupled with a six-month extension on the current contract. So we have the ability to continue to get messaging that we would like to have out in the market. And that six-month extension was to allow for the rescoping of a new RFP 
as well as to accommodate whatever time is necessary for applicants to that RFP to compete. So from an operating standpoint and having the capability to communicate with the U.S. market, we have those elements in place. And so that hasn't been interrupted because of the cancellation of the RFP. And then how are you looking at the uh, return of the cruise ship industry? And we've got the first ship coming back this weekend. The cruise ships that come to Hawaii are required to achieve a memorandum of understanding and ultimately a memorandum of agreement with the state of Hawaii. And I've been impressed with the way Department of Transportation, Harbors Division, Department of Health have all engaged. And so, to further notice, every ship needs to arrive in Honolulu first. I just got word that the Inter-Island Cruise is delaying its startup until the month of March which is roughly a 50 to 60-day delay in it. On a larger scale, cruise ships internationally have been experiencing COVID cases that are concerning. But I believe that the state has done an, an incredible job in creating an environment that, again, places emphasis on keeping the community safe and also holding the cruise ship industry to a very high level and high set of standards in terms of COVID protocols. So this one ship coming through, I believe it's on its way around the world and will be stopping. But because of the COVID surges, I was also, you know, I commend MCL for taking a step to delay the restart of their industry in Hawaii. The one thing I would like to say as well is that To their credit, they're self-imposing a capacity limitation, again, driven by the demand that they feel is there. And starting at a 60% capacity and then taking a very measured kind of approach to it. So I think the industry as a whole, relative to Hawaii cruise ship, has done an excellent job having to deal with the variables presented and the challenges presented by uh, this Omicron variant. The problems that we're seeing with the cancellations of the flights, you know, because crews are quarantining or isolating, that puts a whole wrinkle into the safe travels program, you know, because people may have been tested, but by the time they, you know, land in Hawaii, just there could be a problem. I understand that the safe travels program has dropped health questionnaire to try and expedite the lines at the airport. Are you hearing anything more about that? Uh, other than what you just accounted for, You know, that's very recent information. But again, I I think that the key indicators are going to be case counts, hospitalization. And I think when we look at hospital capacity, there's a tendency to look at the number of beds, right, and how that's being impacted. But one of the other concerns is the ability for hospitals to properly staff themselves. There's an effort right now, I don't know the exact number, of recruiting additional nurses and medical technicians. We did this once before in late summer, early fall, to contract that added support, not only to build capacity, but to support and provide some relief to our own healthcare workers who are residents of Hawaii. Um, You know, all of us are now, what, 21 months into this, 22 months, and there's a sense of frustration and fatigue around all of the restrictions that we've had to deal with. But I'm especially uh, appreciative and concerned about those who are actually on the front line, our healthcare workers, and what their sense of well-being and their own health and mental health, in addition, 
having to contend with something like this over a prolonged period. What, what are you hearing about the uh, travelers that are trying to return back to their home country, you know, and are taking a test and are now testing positive with Omicron spreading so quickly? I mean, I know there was some accommodation being made uh, in some hotels who were willing to take them. Uh, but are you hearing uh, any more about numbers at all? I don't have immediate numbers. I do know that that, that testing as a prerequisite to returning to their home country and then discovering that they're positive. First of all, nobody's prepared for that news to begin with. Secondly, the word I get is that none of them feel that they're financially capable of underwriting that additional period of isolation and quarantine. I do know that the Visitor Aloha Society of Hawaii has stepped in in many cases to help them work through that. And I'm told that up to three hotels in Waikiki are cooperating with DASH to make that accommodation. And I'm awaiting some added information from the neighbor islands as to how that issue is being dealt with. But that is labor intensive in terms of the people at DASH who are having to deal with this. But again, it it is one of the the obligations we have to deal with in in our industry. Anything you want to say just about the forecasts by uh, the economists uh, before the Senate Ways and Means and the House Finance Committee yesterday about the projections that we're going to go back up to 10 million? You know, I expect that those forecasts, I I take to heart, but I also know that they're, they're subject to a whole number of variables. Our work at HDA right now is focused on several fronts, including our own destination management action plans. But effort right now is going into trying to understand the kind of digital and technological infrastructure we need to manage that kind of increased volume. And so at the moment, I'm not focused on those numbers as much as I am trying to understand how we improve the real-time flow of information that will allow residents and visitors to make better choices about where they're congregating uh, at any given time. And right now, uh, it concerns me that we don't have that infrastructure in place to deal with that kind of increased projections that uh, were delivered to the ledge yesterday. DLNR had been hoping that they would have like a reservation system for Diamond Head. I've not heard anything, and it's January, so I'm guessing... You know, it's not soup yet. Yeah, you know, and to deal in our credit, they have a couple of models in mm-hmm. place. Um, but they also realize that each of these destinations, each of these communities is very unique and different. And, yeah. and so, uh, you know, while I'd like to see them scale at a more rapid rate, I also uh, applaud them for being sensitive to how these things get implemented uh, because... Um, these are sensitive issues, and you're in somebody's backyard, and, and you just can't apply the same formula. Yeah, well, I'll follow yeah. up with the LNR just to see what the, the time frame is on that. Uh, but anything else that you just want to underscore in general? You know, other than um, encourage the, the people of Hawaii to, you know, protect your own individual health and that of your, um, your family. And I would encourage, I, I was a little disheartened earlier uh, this week to learn that there are on Oahu alone, about a half million people who got their initial vaccinations who have yet to get their booster shot. And and frankly, fully vaccinated in Hawaii is about to become defined by having that 
that booster. So I would I would just encourage our people to not let our guard down, take all the precautions that we know we need to take. We've, we've learned a lot in the last 22 months. And one of the things we learned is that we can't let our guard down because this particular virus does not know the difference between a resident or a visitor. We're having to look at this in a much more comprehensive manner than ever before and hold ourselves as local residents at the same level of accountability that we're imposing on our visitor. Yeah, you take uh, care of your health and you you know, that'll help our economy. Absolutely. Yeah. And I appreciate the time this morning. That was John DeFries, head of the Hawaii Tourism Authority, talking about the current snapshot of our visitor industry as we work our way through this next recovery phase of the pandemic. Brain drain in Hawaii. That is the subject of today's reality chat. Honolulu Civil Beats business reporter Stuart Yurton joins us today. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Catherine. So I understand that uh, this was part of the discussion at that uh, budget briefing yesterday at the legislature. Yes, this is a big issue, losing population, losing workforce. Um, it's a major, major problem for us here. Um, it Again, people are the lifeblood of the economy. And uh, we keep losing folks. So how do we stack up with the other states? Well, that was the thing. We saw uh, a couple of things from the latest report from the census. One was we were not uh, one of only a handful of states this year to lose population. Uh, In fact, we were one of 17 states in the District of Columbia that actually had a net out migration of people. Uh, The bad news is we were Uh, worse than every other state except three states and the District of Columbia. So we were number, we were fourth from the bottom. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's pretty sobering. I think we were, uh, what, parallel, well, I think California is after us, right? Yes. So we're, again, we're in really uh, very bad shape. It's a bad deal. Again, in terms of actual numbers, it's not as bad as other states that have bigger populations. But in terms of the, the percentage of population that was lost, it was, it was, uh, it was up there. We lost uh, something north of uh, ten to 15,000 people. You know, one of the issues is that um, we actually have more people being born here than die. So uh, we should have had a net increase of people, right? All things being equal, we had more babies. We had like 4,000 more babies. But we have so many people left that not only did they – that left, not only did they offset the babies that were born, but they also um, – uh, there were 10,000 people in addition to that. And remember, there were some people who moved here. So the thought that we had maybe 15,000 people who left, it's actually somewhat more than that. Well, that's not good when we talk about our economy and, and, uh, you know, the jobs that we need to fill. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and this is the problem. We need to we need to keep doing things we need. We to grow the economy. Peter Ho from Bank of Hawaii said, you know, essentially, look, for a vibrant economy, you need either increased productivity. So the same people doing more and generating more economic activity or we need more people. Um, And right now. We, we don't have more people. We have a declining workforce. And in terms of productivity, you know, 
the work we do doesn't generate here in a lot of our businesses. They're tourism businesses. They're service businesses, and they are really at the lower end of GDP producing activity. Now, you know, I know that the the state did talk about trying something different to to try and attract uh, some smart people <laughs> to to come to Hawaii, yes. particularly during the the pandemic, right when when we had everybody working remotely. Right. That's the thing. So, you know, one of the things we, we do see is groups like uh, this uh, Movers and Chakas. Again, they're part of the Hawaii Executive Collaborative. A bunch of uh, leading business uh, people here put together a group. And the idea initially was, hey, why don't we recru- recruit people, remote workers, to live here during the pandemic and, and we'll give them some nice uh, uh, things to get them to come here, et cetera. Uh, what's, what's pretty interesting about that is the the new director, uh, uh, Nicole Lim, she actually wrote an op-ed piece critical of this idea saying, wait a minute, why are we trying to bring all these people here right now? We, we need to help uh, either returning Kaimaaina or uh, local people stay here and make it easier for them. And the group ended up uh, liking what she said and uh, hiring her to be the director. So Yes, they're tr- they're trying not only this group movers and chakas, not only to recruit and and bring in new people, but also retain people and bring back Kamaaina to come back here and live here. So, but again, the idea is this could be a way to stop the brain drain. Uh, they're doing some really interesting work, and we'll see how that goes. Still, yeah. even the director acknowledges it's not enough to offset the loss of ten to fifteen, twenty thousand people. And, you know, be interesting to see at the end of the day uh, how many of the folks that go through their, you know, the cohorts uh, actually, you know, returns home to Hawaii um, and, and, and kind of, you know, build our brain trust, not deplete it. Yeah, that's right. And, and again, one of their new um, uh, endeavors, they call it HTOP, it's it, it, high top, it essentially is designed to... Uh, keep people who've moved here and make their transition easier so the Malahini feel more like uh, welcomed and kind of understand Hawaii. So that that's something else they've got going on. Okay. All right. Well, we'll just have to see how well that goes. But thanks so much, Stuart. Uh, thank you so much, Catherine. That was reporter Stuart Yerton with today's Reality Check. To read his story on this issue, visit civilbeat.org. You're listening to The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe. It happens to be National Bird Day. So for today's Backyard Quiz, we're thinking about our beloved state bird, the nene. It's a very uh, very distinguished bird. Uh, Its black head and nape contrast nicely with the pale yellow of its cheeks. 
its long and white neck with the dark furrows streaking toward its body. Uh, it's plump and heavily patterned in gray and white on top with narrow dark bars underneath. Males and females share similar markings with females being slightly smaller. We almost lost these birds back in 1951. They were considered nearly extinct and placed on the federal endangered species list. But populations today have grown to over 3,000 in the wild. And in 2019, it was downlisted from endangered to threatened. And while our native goose looks very similar to its Canadian relative, the Nene possesses several unique features. For one, they sport longer toes and less webbing on their feet, which is ideal for climbing on the lava plains, which make up part of their habitat. Their breeding habits also set them apart from other geese. So, for today's Backyard Quiz, what is it about their reproductive setting that makes our nene unlike most other waterfowl? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. Uh, the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits providing senior rental housing for veterans in the islands, such as EAH Housing. NareedHawaii.com. Omicron surge and how it's affecting the public's health continues to hold our attention. One listener shared her frustration with what she's seeing on the Big Island via our talkback line in this voicemail. I'm listening to the conversation this morning and they're wondering why so many international visitors and mainland visitors are coming down with positive cases. It's because people here are not vaccinating. So I'm a massage therapist. I work, I'm contracted by myself now but um, I worked in every spa up and down the Kona Coast. And now the cleaning has gone lack. They'll use the same coverlet or blanket for every person that day, the same blanket for each client. And I'm shocked that almost every massage therapist I know is unvaccinated. So people come here and they assume that when they walk into a small room with a massage therapist for two hours, that person is vaccinated. And the transparency isn't even there. There are resorts that are now telling their employees, if a guest or client asks you if you're vaccinated, you're able to say, I don't want to talk about this because my medical history is private. So that's kind of what's going on right now, and it's shocking. I tried to call OSHA. I called Washington, D.C., and they transferred me to Honolulu, and I spoke to him for 20 minutes, and literally he didn't care. So we're in for a whole mess, and he wanted to transfer me to the Big Island Health Department, and I said, if OSHA doesn't care what's going on and you just want to transfer me to the health department, I said, the health department's going to do even less than you. So that's kind of where we are right now. I'm kind of shocked. 
My name is Anna Lee Taylor. I'm from Hobby, but I work up and down the Kona Coast. And I'm fully vaccinated, triple vaccinated, and flu shot. And in response to that voicemail, the Hawaii Department of Labor and Industrial Relations sent this reply via email. The Hawaii Occupational Safety and Health Division, HIOSH, enforces workplace safety and health standards, including emergency ones promulgated for the COVID-19 pandemic. Specifics vary across the kind of industry and type of workplace. HIOSH would be the place for this woman uh, where she could file a workplace complaint with. And another ongoing topic that we've been following is the Red Hill story with the Navy fuel storage tanks. One listener wrote in to share his thoughts. Here's a part of that email. Before World War II, Pearl Harbor did indeed harbor pearls. And for thousands of years before that was an excellent uh, breeding ground for reef fish, open ocean fish, amphibians, birds, reptiles, mollusks, excluding oysters, and an avalanche of uh, oxygen-giving plants that thrive in brackish tidal water. See what the Navy has done, all in the name of fear, defense, and national security. Uh, He signed Gary Harold. If you have a comment or a story you want to share about a story that we aired on our show, call or talk back line 808-792-8217 or send an email to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Where are we going and where have we come from? As we move into the new year, we look to see what's changing politically, spiritually, and more. Our contributing analyst, Neil Milner, joins us today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So, what does it look like? (laughs) How much have we changed? I've done this now, I think, three or four consecutive years. At the end of the year, the Pew Foundation, which, of course, runs a huge international polling thing, is very respected does a summary of their stuff. They pick out their best stuff, and they say these are the striking findings of the year 2020. And so I went through them and and looked at them, and they're pretty interesting. Some won't surprise you. Some might surprise you. But they kind of lump together in certain sorts of themes. So that's that's what it is. I mean, it's not like you necessarily have to agree with the list, but it's a pretty interesting list, and it gets you thinking about uh, how one thing is related to another. And uh, how does that play into just this pandemic and COVID times? Well, that's one of the first things. You know, the the, uh, the 2019 one was much more COVID-focused. This one, that what you see, though, in, in a couple of the findings, and I think there's about 15 totally, uh, you, you see two things about COVID and about how it changed. In, in the year before, 50% of the people surveyed said in national surveys said that they knew someone who had been hospitalized or had died from COVID. That's now up to 70%. Another finding that I think is COVID-related is that 80% of Asian Americans think that violence against them has grown worse and, and an increasing percentage of them have experienced something themselves. I think that's also related to the aftermath or the implications of COVID and the way it was getting defined as a Chinese virus and so on. So those are the main direct COVID findings. No doubt the findings about some more political stuff that we'll talk about in a second are COVID-related. But it is interesting to see, to me, just how much, how many people have now experienced it secondhand uh, but close the terrible effects of, of, of COVID. To have 70% of the people 
who know someone who have been hospitalized and die from it, that's really high. Well, you've got the polarization and, you know, not just with, you know, the parties, but, you know, with the positions on things like vaccines. <laughs> you well, know, that's the other finding. The one that probably comes out the most, that has the, the most collection of uh of different findings, it has to do with uh, politics, polarization, and elections. Essentially, the polarization that has existed now for a number of years and has gotten greater, it's gotten even more greater. And the 2020 election and its aftermath, according to the polls, has made this worse. First of all, the 2020 election was incredibly mobilized. Every state in the union uh, had an increase in its uh, in its voting turnout. Minnesota had like 80% of the eligible voters, not the, not the voters who had registered, 80% of people who were eligible voted. Hawaii's went up, although Hawaii is still one of the lowest, uh, lowest states. So you had a tremendous amount of interest in it. And then right afterwards, you saw the polarization even increase about basic Democratic uh, election issues, about voting and about how fair the election was and so on. And that clearly shows up in the polls, where um, there is an enormous difference between Democrats and Republicans about who won the election. And and there is an increasingly large difference over what should be done about January 6th, the insurrection. If you look at the total numbers, it seems like oh, no, the majority of people are kind of think you should got, have gotten impeached and that you should do something about January 6th. But that doesn't reflect what is a huge difference between Republicans and Democrats. Basically, Republicans think that, uh, in the polls, think that we shouldn't worry about it too much and that we may be treating the people who participated too hard. And, of course, Democrats are way on, on the other side of it. And so if you add that to the fact that the uh, trust in national media the difference between the trust between Democrats and Republicans, according to a poll that was done, just continues to drop. In, 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 a, in a few years, the Republican uh, trust in national media has halved from about 70 percent to about 36 percent. The Democrats have stayed pretty much the same. You put that all together, what essentially you have is the threat to democracy on the basis of polarization has gotten greater, and that shows up in the polls. And if you add the COVID stuff to it, you see why we are where we're at. Well, tomorrow marks, you know, that one-year anniversary, and, you know, there was lots of talk about healing the nation, uh, bridging the gap. But, you know, I don't know if you saw uh, 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 Senator Brian Schatz's speech on the floor yesterday, uh, you know, he had some well, you know, pretty harsh he, words. Healing the nation is something that I would certainly like to see, or getting the nation back together. I'm not a big person about healing it. The thing is that it's all aspirational right now. There aren't any serious moves in that direction because we really don't want to go there as a public. We say we do, but we really don't want to go there. And, and again, I'm going beyond the data on this, but it's pretty clear what the situation is if you look at the degree of polarization that shows up. There's another set of, of findings in, this sur- in these surveys that I think even exacerbates the problem. It, uh, Pew does this international survey of what people in other countries think of American democracy. And 
only 17% of people in these other countries, about, I don't know, 25 other countries, think that it's a model that they should be interested in adopting right now. 57% in these surveys say that it's, um, that it used to be a model, but it's not anymore. And this doesn't vary that much by country. The interesting thing is that they, if you look at how Americans view this, only 16% think democ- the, the American democracy is a model that should go somewhere else, you know, that other countries can follow. And 72% think it used to be, but it's not anymore. So you have this kind of implication for our foreign policy in, in other countries. That uh, Ann Applebaum, in a piece in, in The Atlantic, recently wrote it's a really powerful piece about how, in a sense, the dictators in Europe and in, in Asia and in China are using the critique of American democracy and, and what we've gone through the last uh, few years as foil to how their, their kind of politics, which they might occasionally call democracy, but certainly isn't. Well, you know, uh, I know that, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about democracy and, and uh, the ideals and, you know, with this anniversary, it's like, well, what do we believe in? What do we stand for? You know, and the Democrats say, well, you know, uh, under Trump, you know, we had an autocrat. Uh, and, 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 and that's a dangerous thing. Well, it is a dangerous thing. And I think he was an autocrat. But, hey, you know what? That's me and a significant number of people, including most Republicans, would vote for him tomorrow again. So you can get into an argument about whether he was really a Republican, whether he's really an autocrat or not, and you can do that. And you can also look at the fact that he would be reelected, and that he still is the leader of the uh, still is the leader of the Republican Party. So and and that essentially Republicans are petrified uh, by him, uh, whether they support him or whether they're petrified by him. They they are. They are doing his bidding, and that's the reason that 2022 and 2024 are going to be such significant and scary elections. There is another difference that the Pew poll shows that I want to mention here because it's on this point. Republicans in the polls increasingly see voting as uh, something that you have that that is a privilege, not a right that you have to kind of prove that you're able to, to vote and that it's a privilege. Democrats increasingly see it as a right. So you have a huge difference there. Now, that, that would be maybe an academic kind of difference, something abstract, until you look at the two dozen or so states that have changed their laws to make it, one, harder to vote, and two, to take control of the ultimate counting of the vote and the certification of the vote out of the hands of uh, public officials who are supposed to do this work and put it in the hands of politicians like governors and legislatures. So that's why that's another finding here that's worth watching and that fits into this sort of not sort of pretty pessimistic pattern about what's happening. I thought it was interesting that uh, one of the Pew surveys noted that there were uh, more people that are saying they're uh, religiously unaffiliated. Oh, yeah, that's a whole interesting set of findings, too, that you can call it how this country is changing lots of ways. That's not new. That's been happening gradually, but it's increased. One of the largest groups of people, when you ask them what they are now, they say nothing. We're not anything. Not atheists. They're just nothing. Nothing in particular. that's just growing. It's about 30% of the country. If you also look at some of the other stuff there, 
So you have a country that's increasingly irreligious, at least in the conventional sense. You have a country in which more people are saying they don't want to have children and more people that are living alone. And, and, and you've got some other interesting changes that make some people nervous, for sure. One is that now more women than men have a, have a four-year college degree, which is an enormous change and probably one of the most, uh, the, the most positive effects of, what's, of, the feminist, uh, of the feminist movement. So that's been, that's been a, 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 uh, an important change. You also have now for the first time ever, a decrease in the number of people who identify as whites between the 2010 and the 2020 census. If you ask people what they think of that, most of them say, eh, this is in the polls. A little more than a majority say, that's not either good or bad. But 31% of people say that's bad, and um, only 17% say it's good. If you lump these all together, you get a kind of a sense of, what kinds of changes that certain people that get identified as Trump voters identify? There's certainly a lot of other things going on. Worry when they worry about changes in America. Well, we'll just have to see uh, what happens in 2022. But thanks so much, Neil. We're living through it. Okay, take care. We have been talking with our political analyst, Neil Milner, on a segment that we call The Longview. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to experience treasures of devotion, human connection in secular and sacred art, featuring works from the 14th century to present day. HonoluluMuseum.org I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, we'll get an inside view of what the global connectivity picture looks like from the Pacific Telecommunications Council's perspective. We'll hear from the PTC organizers how the Internet has taken center stage across the Pacific and what it might mean for Hawaii. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from Evergreen by Deborah, featuring hydroflow permeable pavers. At evergreenbydebra.com, learn more about how hydroflow pavers are designed to allow rainwater to find its way back to the island's aquifers and reduce runoff. In today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you about a familiar bird that we almost lost in the 1950s. The nene made a comeback thanks to statewide conservation efforts and breeding programs. Captive-bred birds were reintroduced to the wild back in 1957, the same year it became our official state bird when a small population was placed in Maui's Haleakala Crater and on Hawaii Island. It's a native species, and ornithologists believe it evolved from the Canadian goose a half a million years ago. Fossil evidence on Hawaii Island show this bird has a, a much larger uh, ancestor of today's uh, creatures, uh, the 19-pound giant Hawaiian goose. Uh, today's nene have evolved to adapt to life in the islands. For instance, 
their toes are much longer and their webbing much shorter. That is because they spend less time in the water and more time climbing and walking around the lava plains, coastal dunes, and grassland that make up their habitat. Less time in the water compared to other geese also makes their uh, breeding habits unique, and that is because Nene mate on land, unlike most waterfowl. And that is the answer we were looking for in today's Backyard Quiz, and congrats to Jane from Mililani who knew the answer. So that's today's quiz. If you have one to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Ever wonder what it would sound like if you wandered into your kitchen looking for a cup of coffee and were instead met with a hundred hungry seabirds? sound from a Hawaiian petrol colony on the island of Lanai. And that loud cacophony is cause for celebration among conservationists. Researchers use bird calls per minute as one measure of the colony's population health and growth. So the louder, the better. And Lanai is home to one-third of the world's population of Hawaiian petrel, but high rates of predation from feral cats and rats have put petrel colonies on Lanai in peril. Conservationists with Pulama Lanai have been working to fight predation with traps and fencing around uh, the bird's 80-acre habitat. Uh, Rachel Sprague is the director of conservation with Pulama Lanai, and she spoke with HPR Savannah Harriman-Pote. We've been able to see just in a couple years a really major improvement in reproductive success from where about 80% of the chicks were getting killed each year to now about 80% of the chicks are successfully fledging and leaving the island. Uh, The major cause for success was we were able to work with the Fish and Wildlife Service and DOFA, the state agency, and the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation and set up a really large trapping grid of traps for feral cats as well as traps for non-native rats across Lanai Hale, which is the remaining music forest. And uh, we were able to, with our deployment of those traps, we saw a concurrent uh, increase in reproductive success and decrease in the number of uh, depredations by these non-native predators that we were seeing on monitoring cameras. When we discussed the Wa'u with researchers on Hawaii Islands last summer, they had just discovered one of the first Hawaiian petrel nests on the slopes of Mauna Kea, I believe in decades. Mm-hmm. And there were, was real concern because this one nest was being preyed upon by a feral cat. And I spoke with one researcher in particular who had worked on finding it, who was trying to just communicate to people that this nest is 60 miles away from any major population center, that the choices we make in our backyards with having domesticated animals or even the plants we choose to grow in our backyards carry out into conservation zones. And so everyone's participating in conservation just merely by living on small remote islands. Do you think that that's true of Lanai as well? So on Lanai, the endangered Ua'u colony, some of the densest nesting habitat we've 
seen in the state through you know our partnerships with other organizations that study them is about one mile from Lenai City, which is the primary place where everyone lives. So I think on the Big Island, they were seeing feral cats moving, you know, seven miles a night kind of thing. And so one mile for a cat is really not much of a problem. And we've seen on our monitoring cameras a cat with a collar that we could see the name of the cat and the phone number. <laughs> on the entirely other side of the whole whole Lanai-Hale and Hawaiian petrol colony from the town. So it had made it maybe four or five miles away from town. And when we called and said, hey, we, we saw your cat on a, on a trail camera, and, or we, actually, we started out asking, have you seen your cat recently? And they said, oh, yeah, it's right here. <laughs> and we said, well, it's, it was seen way out in the middle of what we would, it's out of a state conservation district in endangered native habitat. And so, yes, where people live in Hawaii is part of conservation, even if you live in a town. Looking at the Ua'u itself, the Hawaiian petrol colony, how is it connected to these lands and the culture of these lands? And how does it participate within the ecosystem? Um. That might be one of my favorite questions. <laughs> um, you know, Wau are, I just, I find them fascinating because they're, they're a seabird that travels two or 3,000 miles away from Hawaii and comes back to these tiny islands in the middle of the ocean to nest and only comes back to the islands at night. And it, at this point, only really lives in the mountains. And a lot of people haven't seen it. And it's hard to care about things that you don't see. Like you can you can see a an apopane if you go to the right place or a Hawaiian monk seal. It's actually quite hard to to see a an uau, but they're prominent in in Hawaiian cultural history and you know an oli and mele. They're also now we're learning. You know we we talk about this connection between. Um, Mauka to Makai, and that what we do on the land affects the ocean. The seabirds are, and the Ua'u in particular, are kind of the other half of that. That They feed out on the ocean, and they, through their guano, bring nutrients back to the forest. There have been studies in Hawaii showing that I think it's over 30 or 40 percent of the nitrogen found in Ohia in the very top of the forest is actually from marine sources. And the only way it gets there to the top of the mountains is from the seabirds that nest all across the Hawaiian Islands or used to nest all across the Hawaiian Islands. Um, and so they're, you know, one of the species that helps to feed the forest and helped to bring nutrients to this really, you know, these barren volcanic landscapes like we see on the Big Island now. Those forests uh, don't grow from nothing. And so the seabirds are, you know, they're both culturally important and I think they just have sort of have this fascination once people start learning about the birds' lives and the fact that they, yeah, even while they have chicks, the parents are leaving Hawaii, flying almost all the way to Alaska, but coming all the way back multiple times over the course of months and months and months. And it takes both parents in order to make those chicks successful. So just see, seeing all of those connections between, you know, people and communities and the seabirds that live in a community, as well as, you know, seabirds that are making their own connections between the land and the ocean is pretty special. 
And that was Rachel Sprague, the Director of Conservation with Puloma Lanai. She was speaking with HPR's Savannah Harriman Pote. And, of course, we couldn't leave you on National Bird Day without a Manu Minute from University of Hawaii at Hilo's own Patrick Hart. Here he is with the song of the Hawaiian petrel. The Oahu, or Hawaiian petrel, is a seabird that spends its entire life at sea, only coming to land in the Hawaiian Islands to breed. Like many Hawaiian birds, Oahu are named after the sound they make. Their haunting calls can be heard at night as they fly mauka to their nests high in the mountains. Oahu navigate using the stars, and baby Oahu leaving the nest for the first time get confused by artificial lights and can become grounded. This makes them easy prey for dogs and cats. When Oahu were more abundant around the islands, they were considered a great delicacy, but nowadays they're listed as an endangered species. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Department of Biology at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, committed to helping preserve, protect, and restore the biological diversity of Hawaii Island. Friends of to go now, but up tomorrow we plan to check in with Hilton Rachel, head of the Healthcare Association, about preparing for a possible surge in hospitalizations due to the Omicron uh, variant. You want to listen to something you've heard on our air? Find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.